Our Father, as we hear your word to us, please give us ears and hearts that are open and ready to hear, ready to take on board what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know, brethren, uh, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the Jews churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, a man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, 
They recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Kephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Let's pray. God, strengthen us and guide us and give us what we need, Lord. Show us the, the certainty of our hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are times and circumstances in our lives that the last thing we feel we need is the message of Jesus. You know, maybe, maybe doubts, you know, pop up in our heads. Maybe we sort of think, surely not this. Surely this isn't the answer to what I'm going through at the moment. But for many of us, there are also times when we feel like this message of Jesus is exactly what we need. Something from outside our normal experience, something deep, something spiritual. In most human societies throughout history, there has been a fascination with the spiritual, with that unseen realm, and with whatever mysterious connection there, there sometimes seems to be between those invisible realities and the tangible, visible aspects of our lives. If I dance around the fire, make the right offering, utter the right chant, will it rain tomorrow so that I can have food to eat? Of course, you put it like that, it sounds a little bit primitive, doesn't it, to our enlightened, science-informed, modern perspective. Surely the, the gods are not real, and even if they were, how on earth would you find out what they want? What are they like? And what would, they, what would they want in exchange for giving me sun and rain and fertility and all that, whatever it is that I'm asking? How do I know what I'm, how I'm going to do this trade with them? And so we're in a bit of a no-man's land. We've got this fascination with the spiritual, maybe a fascination with the paranormal, or with the idea of connecting with loved ones who've passed away. Maybe you have a sense of fate or destiny. This is, you know, this is how my life seems to be drawn. You know, there's that sort of awareness. Or maybe you just have that question, is there magic? So we've got this fascination. But on the other hand, we've got a, a scepticism, and in many ways justified scepticism, about how we access that world, that spiritual world. Is it possible to speak in any way knowingly about it? And with that in mind, what do people make of other people speaking with authority on matters of faith and spirituality? On the whole, Aussies are suspicious of authority in general. I wonder if that's part of our convict roots. Of course, I know we're in South Australia, no convicts here, so, but we still have the same kind of issue, don't we? Suspicion of authority in general. Um, 
we, we instinctively know how to thumb the nose at those in charge. You try going along to a public meeting where the politician and the crowd aren't in agreement on something, you'll see how we treat uh, our authority. It can get heated. We're an egalitarian bunch. Don't treat yourself, think of yourself more highly than me. But we're especially suspicious of religious authority. Perhaps the church once played a role as a moral authority for our community, but not anymore. The marriage debate that's been going on for the last few years, things came to a big climax a couple, a couple of years ago, that made that very clear. So has the Royal Commission into the institutional responses to child abuse. There, there is a major credibility crisis. That saying, thus saith the Lord, it just won't cut the mustard anymore. So then, what do we make of the Apostle Paul? Today is the second sermon in our series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. We just had a part of that read out. Last week, Paul warned these first century Christians in Galatia urgently not to stray from his original message. Don't mess with it. He'd planted the churches, but others have come in with a slightly different message, and he's telling them, you desert my original message, and you're deserting God. Now, how does that sit with you? Uh, he's saying that his view is God's view. Wow. Are we really reading this guy? And he can't even allow a slight variance from his view? Now, you may think, okay, big deal. Who is this so-called Apostle Paul anyway? Historical, long time ago, you know, what relevance is there? He's not so easy to dismiss, actually. He was appointed as the Apostle to the Gentiles. That's us. His missionary journeys took him to the ancient cultural hubs of Athens and Rome and Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth. His 13 letters to the churches are not only some of the most pastorally powerful documents ever written, we just read two verses from, that show the point from 1 Thessalonians 4, but they also contain some of the most beautiful and sophisticated summaries of Christian doctrine in the whole Bible. You discredit Paul and it has significant implications for us. And of course, some people have sought to do just that, you know, it is sometimes the, the way of things to smooth over the rough edges, isn't it? I find it difficult to talk about that sort of thing. Well, Paul mustn't be right. But before we judge him, we need to hear him. All of us has a story, and God works through our stories. And it's through hearing each other's stories that we, we start to break down barriers and build bridges. You want to resolve a conflict with someone? Start by asking them to tell you their side of the picture. Step into their shoes and you'll understand not only things about them, but sometimes we learn about ourselves too. So hearing Paul's story, that's what we're going to do uh, for the rest of our time. And in today's passage, Paul recounts part of his story of his life. That, and this was a life turned upside down. So you may have been reading this going by and thinking, Whoa, what relevance is this? He's, I went this place, I went that place. We're going we're gonna to hear his story, what he's saying the significance of this story is. Because there are implications of how he tells this story and what happened to him. 
And it's with this in mind that we start, the story starts at verse 11. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now you think about that. What what are the implications if this is true? If Paul didn't make up his story, if he didn't speculate it into existence, which is where many of us get our spiritual ideas from, we say, well, I like to think of God as this, I think God would be that, you know. If that's not the case, and he actually did receive this directly, surely if it was a revelation from Jesus Christ, then his message, Paul's message, is Jesus' message. It's authentic. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus calmed storms. Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed the sick. Incidentally, those are the things that the Old Testament said that God would do when God came to his people. And Jesus has done them. And according to Paul, Jesus has relayed this message about who he is, Jesus, and what he's done and the significance of that through him to the Gentiles. So what Paul does then is he gives a three-stage testimony. And he's trying to demonstrate that there are some facts about what happened to him and how they happened that enable us to believe that he speaks on behalf of the one who calmed the storms, the one who raised the dead, Jesus. So the three stages of his story or testimony are, stage one, he didn't create the gospel himself. Stage two, he didn't receive the gospel from other apostles. And stage three, his independent gospel did not contradict the other apostles. Okay, those are the three stages of this passage. We're going to look at them now. Stage one, he did not create the gospel himself. Now you may have heard of the... the, the light that blinds Paul on the road to Damascus. And then he is healed of this blindness when he arrives in Damascus, and we can read about that in Acts chapter 9. But that's only part of the miracle of his conversion. Also miraculous is how radical and how rapid is his personal transformation. He went from, if you see verse 13 intensely persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. To the reports we read about in verse 23, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's an about turn, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty rare to have radical overnight about faces in our core beliefs in life. It happens, but it's rare. Paul's transformation, of course, is not typical. He was humiliated. He was brought to his knees, basically told that everything you've been living for thus far, you've been basically wasting your time. And Paul says that later. He says, I I consider it dung now. And what does a proud man do when he's humiliated? Well, either he tries to justify himself Or he slinks off and hopes no one will notice. Well, 
Paul does neither of those things. He comes out swinging, but he's got a completely opposite life mission from what he had before. And this, this transformation of Paul had cost him dearly. I take it that he just wouldn't have persisted with this if he wasn't convinced that it was true. In verse 14, he said that he'd been advancing in Judaism, that's the religion associated with being a Jew, beyond many of his own age among his own people. And that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. So he's the Rhodes Scholar of his day. But not just that. He's as much in the in crowd as you can get. Jewish society revolved around the religious big shots. You know, who, who are they? Who's the, who are the impressive ones? They were the, the, the religious people. And Paul was on track to becoming the biggest religious big shot in town. And you don't give up that stuff lightly. In fact, what it would mean is that he would, go, he would become a social pariah an outcast. And that's what he reflects on in the verse just before our passage, verse 10. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Something big here has happened. Damascus was going to be his great triumph. He was going to arrest as many Christians as possible, stamp out this annoying little faith in Jesus. But Paul hadn't even entertained the idea that arresting, arresting Christians might be sinful. That in doing that, he's opposing God. He thought he was doing the right thing. He wasn't. It is a reminder to us, isn't it, that a well-meaning person may still be an enemy of God. But, verse 16, Paul says, God revealed his Son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see that Paul was passive in his conversion? He didn't decide for himself or just go and change his mind. God did, that's what he's telling us. Verse 15, God set him apart even before his birth and called him by grace. There is a wonderful, beautiful, sovereign thing going on in Paul's life and he's now become aware of it. Paul's gospel was not his own invention. His gospel was an intervention by the grace of God. Not an invention but an intervention by the grace of God that took him in the opposite direction of where he had chosen to head. Surely God should have held him to account for persecuting the church. But instead, God, no, he graciously reveals himself to Paul, not only forgives him, but makes him the apostle to the Gentiles. And then Paul now offers that grace to the Gentiles with no strings attached. That itself is a miracle. You think about it. There is no way in the world that the old Paul would ever have offered God's grace, unmerited, undeserved, to the uncircumcised Gentile sinners. No way. That was the very heart of the exact opposite of everything Paul was teaching. Paul offering grace to the Gentiles as his own idea. Now that would be a fanciful invention. 
Paul says he received his gospel and to me that sounds credible. Stage two, he did not receive his gospel from the other apostles. Now, who are the apostles? If you are reading this directly from the original Greek text and you could understand Greek, uh, we'd, um, we'd see the word apostolos, which to a Greek reader would simply mean sent one. Sent one. So the 12 disciples or followers of Jesus, they became the 12 apostles or sent ones when Jesus sent them to tell everyone what they'd seen and heard. And interestingly, we we kind of skipped over this last week, but in chapter 1 where he begins this letter, Paul starts by calling himself an apostle too. He describes himself as Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so Paul's backstory here gives, uh, gives him his identity. Jesus sent him. He's different from the other 12 apostles because he's the, the apostle to the Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts 26. But fundamentally, he's still sent by Jesus. Now, what would have been the problem if Paul had received his gospel from the other apostles? What's wrong with the other apostles' uh, gospel? Well, there's nothing wrong with their, their gospel, of course. There's nothing um, about their witness or their gospels. They saw Jesus as well. Paul just wanted to establish that his message had been received independently. It had come directly through Jesus through this encounter on the road. And verse 16, he says, My immediate response to meeting Christ was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. And later I returned to Damascus. So he's steering away from Apostle Central, otherwise known as Jerusalem, where it all happened. And he steers away from Apostle Central for about three years. And he continues, verse 18, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas, Peter, And stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea. That's the churches around Jerusalem that are in Christ. So he's had some kind of personal retreat for three years in Arabia, perhaps a time of study and reflection, completely removed from Apostle Central, Jerusalem. And then he does this whistle-stop tour to Jerusalem, just two weeks. He spends time with only Peter and James. James isn't actually one of the 12. The point is, it was a brief, informal visit, a get-to-know-you stay. He wasn't off to theological college to be trained in Peter's theology. So he didn't receive his gospel from the other apostles. Stage three, Paul's independent gospel did not contradict the other apostles. So as we head into chapter 2, it's 14 years later that he goes to Jerusalem to do the full check on his theology and to see if it lines up with the other apostles. There has been plenty of time for it to go cuckoo, right? That's what he's been establishing. Or plenty of time for the other apostles and their message to go cuckoo too, for them to diverge, to modify, to tweak it and change it. Remember, no internet, no social media. They're just independent, living thousands of kilometres away from each other. 
And he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Now, you know, you flick past these names as you're, as you're reading. Oh, yeah, Titus, whatever. Um, Titus is an apprentice of Paul, but he's, he's not there just to, you know, just, just watch, how the, watch how I do this stuff, Paul. He's not just there, sorry, watch how I do this stuff, Titus. Um, he's, not, he's not there just to kind of um, learn and observe, do a little bit of networking. Titus is actually a test case. He's a Gentile. Last week we dipped our toes into the particular problems that Paul is writing to the Galatians about and we'll dive back into that next week. But I do need to say a couple of more things about the issue now, otherwise we won't understand what Titus is doing here in the text. You see, the twisted version of the gospel that is being taught to the Galatians by this other group was this. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in him. Yep. But you also need to become a Jew because that's where salvation has come from. You need to be a Jew. In particular, the men need to undergo circumcision as the crucial outward sign of becoming a Jew. And Paul is flabbergasted at this modification of the message. And the problem is that that message undermines salvation by faith, which is the core message of Christian doctrine. If you have to add faith, sorry, add to faith, some kind of other thing, maybe it's an ethnic or behavioural requirement, in order to be fully right with God, then what does it say about what Jesus did on the cross? It says that it wasn't enough to take away people's sins. And it also leads to other problems like one Christian thinking that they're better than another because they've got more, more credibility than the other. So Paul is adamant. Okay, so what's Titus got to do with this? He drags Titus in. He's a Gentile Christian. This is a little conference with the apostles in Jerusalem. What are they going to require him to do? Hmm, I wonder if he realised when he accepted the invitation to go on the visit. Will there need to be some urgent, painful initiation ceremony for this young man if he's going to call himself a Christian any longer? Or is he a Christian? Is, he, is, is, he, is it enough to, be, to have faith in Christ alone? You know, I'm guessing Titus is sweating a little bit. So I'm just going to read a slab of Paul's story again and hopefully the meaning will be clear. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and hadn't been running my race in vain. All the things he taught the Galatians... Are they about to be undermined by the apostles insisting upon circumcising Gentile Christians? Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Verse 8, verse 6, sorry. As for those who are held in high esteem, the apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And then in verse 9, the apostles give Paul the right hand of fellowship. That is a very significant moment, a momentous event just like an earthquake 
breaking a continent in half. It is that significant. Before Christ, the only way to receive the blessings of God was to become a Jew, to go to Jerusalem. But now, because of the gospel of Christ, salvation is for the Gentiles too, simply by faith, even in Victor Harbour. The uncircumcised can remain circumcised. Sorry, can remain uncircumcised. But even more significant, we can know the grace of God wherever we are on the planet. Let me wind up by talking about apostolic authority, that is the authority of apostles, and the grace of God. Apostolic authority and the grace of God. You notice as we went flying through this text that Paul raised the topic of freedom. That was in verse 4 of chapter 2. Christians have a unique freedom that no one else in the community has. Not because we're any better than anyone in the community, I might add, but because we have been freed by the gospel. We are passive in this liberation. It's not even our own idea. Jesus himself said these words. I don't know if you remember these from John. John's gospel, that is. Chapter 8, verse 34. He says, everyone who sins... Do you remember what he says? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the normal human condition according to our Lord Jesus. Not just that we sin but that the sin we commit commit, is itself a cruel slave driver that drives us on to more sin, that we can't get us out of that. He's saying, you don't sin because you're free. It's not your freedom that enables you to sin. You sin because you're enslaved. Completely upside down view from the world, isn't it? We think completely differently. I'd like to act and speak and think however I want. And surely that is freedom. Right? That's, that's how we think. Jesus says, no. Acting or speaking or thinking against God puts you in a position of enmity towards God from which you simply cannot escape. There is nothing you can do about it. You are enslaved. You need liberation. But two verses on from where Jesus says this in John 8, he says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we hang on to those words, don't we? You will be free indeed. And then he also says in that passage, If you hold on to my teaching, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's cementing a tight link between truth and freedom. Truth and freedom. Without truth, without holding on to the truth, without protecting the truth, how can we have this freedom? And throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is unequivocal that there is only one way to freedom, and that is through him. It's a truth claim. And so, you know, we, we may struggle in our age with truth claims. And yet Jesus is telling us this is the only way to freedom. And as human beings, we desperately need freedom. We desperately want it. And 
so often look in the wrong place for it. Freedom, of course, is also a major theme of Galatians, which we'll explore in coming weeks. But Paul is emphatic that our freedom is completely dependent on the preservation of the truth, the reliable message that was first handed down from those who saw Jesus. And just what Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So how do we get to the truth about Jesus? Because, you know, there are a lot of people who who want to try and do that and they want to kind of go around the Bible a little bit. This morning, as I was driving down here, I, um, you know, I was on. I had my. I was coming from Adelaide. I was had my cruise control on, and you know, it's a bit wet, and the road starts to get increasingly windy, and and the cruise control suddenly kind of takes over, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Just as you're coming into a windy bend, and the car's slowed down a bit, and the, it just kind of takes over, and you're going, "Whoa, I better turn this cruise control off." And then I'm thinking, "Yeah, I'm. Dr- my, my foot is now driving the car." And then I thought, "You silly oaf." Your foot is not driving the car. You are driving the car um, using the agency of your foot. Your foot is quite... You, you need your foot to drive the car. I need the car to be in good nick as well. I mean, if, if my mind or my body is out of whack, you know, that's, that's dangerous. If, uh, if the car is out of whack, that's dangerous. The point is I drive the car using the agency of my body and of my feet and Jesus gives us his freedom. He gives us the gospel through the agency of his apostles. And the apostles bring us the gospel through the agency of translators and of publishers of Bibles and of preachers and of Bible study leaders. The point is, we have access to Christ. Christ's message is for all of us. And we are, in one way or another, his agents. But don't, don't let's sort of put to one side the agency of people like the apostles, and particularly the apostle Paul in this instance. Why can't the gospel just be about caring for people? You know, why can't it? Why can't we just say, you know, be good, care for people, do the right thing by other people? Well, God's message through Christ is ultimately a message of caring for people, isn't it? It's the ultimate message of caring for people. It's giving them what they desperately need. Christ shed his blood out of love, out of care for us, out of devotion to the human race, determined to live to liberate us from our sin. And how do I know that's the right message? Why do you keep on believing? Why do you keep going back to your Bibles? Because that message has been brought to us through the apostles. They were the ones commissioned to pass it on, to write it down. I love hearing Paul tell his story, but I think his story needs to be escalated into a different category. It's not just interesting historical biography. When he's saying, don't change my story, I don't think he's being arrogant. I think he's being faithful. He's saying, we need the message that came from him. And you mess with it, you're messing with him. I passed on to you what I got from him. You and I have never seen the risen, glorious Jesus. 
Can you imagine if you did though? Paul had seen just a glimpse and it was enough to blind him for three days. It changed his life. He knew it was intended though for the changing of other lives as well. And so that message needs to be protected and defended at all costs. These apostles, they saw him risen from the dead. And if I'm going to preach the freedom of the gospel to this generation and the next generation, I don't want to be making it up. I want to be preaching what the eyewitnesses said. And if people aren't sure about what really happened, can I trust this, can I trust that? I want them, I want them to know that these are the words of eyewitnesses. Do you find the message of Paul and his account compelling? That God has brought freedom from sin to anyone through Christ who puts their faith in him and that this message mustn't be messed with. And do you believe that it comes with divine authority because it comes via Paul from Christ himself? What we actually have in our hands, if you've got your Bibles in your hands um, or on a, on a device, what we have is the, are the, words of the, the original words of the apostles to a 99.9% accuracy. There are thousands and thousands of copies of manuscripts that have been passed on and handed on. And we can trust these words. What do you think the New Testament is? It's the account written by Jesus' sent ones. The closest thing a human being can have to the authority of Christ. You read this, you're reading Christ's authorised words. Words that bring grace and peace and freedom. And he wants those words to be heard by all. So we mustn't ever downplay them or ignore them. We must be diligent in studying them. Seek out God's truth in the word and believe it. Find the reality that is beyond opinions and perspectives. Anchor your life in Christ the Saviour. Whatever the circumstance we face. This, I believe this message about Jesus is exactly what we need. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for your servant Paul, for his courage, for his determination, and for his faithfulness to you. We thank you for orchestrating these circumstances so that we can see his independence and that we can look at the gospel that he has recorded for us and the gospel that comes through the other apostles and we can see the great synthesis. Our Father, we thank you that you are liberating humanity through this gospel. Please help us to grab hold of it, believe it ourselves every day, but also to share it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.